What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. A.W. Tozer said that very famously. You may have heard it before. What's your response to that quote? Positive? Negative? You receive that in some way or in some way dismiss it? What's most important about you is what comes into your mind when you think about God. How you respond to that may give some clue to the state of your heart, whether or not you think God is most important or even more important than you. This quote is relevant in approaching all of the Bible, but especially in approaching the book of Isaiah, which we're going to spend the rest of 2019 in. Isaiah especially is going to tell us how to think rightly about God, about who he is, about his character, his morality, his standards, his majesty, his thoughts, his promises, his mercy. More than that, Isaiah will show that God is most important. That God is regarded as most important, that he is exalted, that his name is glorified, that is more important than any other goal on earth. God's glory, the praise of God's name. More important than how you do on your next test, kids. It is more important than untapping your potential. God's glory, the praise of God's name, is more important than the advancement of your political party. Isaiah will remind us that we must see God for who he is. And we must see God as being the most important. And we'll see from this book that when we really do see God for who he is, then we will naturally see him as the most important. Well, there is a problem, though, and that can be summed up in another famous quote. This one is from John Calvin. He said, man's nature is a perpetual factory of idols. A perpetual factory of idols. It is in our nature not to think right thoughts about God, but to think wrong thoughts about God. For us to make him in our image. Friends, how many times have you heard the phrase, I like to think of God like this. It is in our nature to regard other things, even ourselves, as more important than the God of the universe. According to the Bible, including, as we'll see, Isaiah, this problem is not because of our ignorance. This problem is ultimately because of our rebellion. That's a big, strong word, maybe one we, not, we don't use very often. It's not fr- it, our wrong thoughts about God is not just that we don't know any better. It's actually because we refuse and reject what is true about God and who he is. Isaiah is going to show who God is. He's going to sh- show God's importance, that he alone deserves glory and he will get it. He's going to show our rebellion. And what God thinks of that. And he's going to show how God still can overcome that rebellion by his grace. Well, if you're new to Old Oak Bible Church, it's normally at this point when we turn to a specific passage in the word. Um, 
being a large book that Isaiah is, it can be a little harder to read at points also. We're going to cover Isaiah in broader strokes uh, so that we can see the whole picture and then be ready to appreciate the finer details later on. Um, So before going to Isaiah, a specific passage in it, I want you to take a Bible and turn to a surprising spot. Turn to the table of contents in your Bible. Yes, they are included in most. The table of contents. Uh, If you're struggling to find the table of contents, they're probably on page one. (laughs) And friends, if you still need a table of contents to find a book in the Bible, do not feel bad about that. Uh, It is good that you are just in the Bible at all. Um, So if you look at the table of contents, you're going to see two major sections the Old Testament and the New Testament. Testament's a fancy word, uh, meaning promise or covenant. Uh, so the old is everything that came before and prepared for Jesus, the central figure of the Bible. And the New Testament tells us of the life of Jesus and everything after him. So within the Old Testament, the first five books, you'll see them Genesis through Deuteronomy. They are known as the Torah. Another word for instruction or law. They're also referred to as the Pentateuch. You see that word five in there, Pentateuch. The Torah tells the story of how God created the world and created people in his world, but people turned away from God. But also tells the story, the beginning part of God's story of redemption, bringing back his people to himself. And God is going to do that, rescuing and restoring people through one family. And this one family becomes a nation. Israel, through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now, each spring of every year, we are going through one book of the Pentateuch. We've been through Genesis, we've been through Exodus, and coming up in 2020, Lord willing, we will go through Leviticus. Um, But after the Pentateuch, table of contents still, this nation's story continues in what's known as the historical books. So there you see that Joshua through Esther. Those are the historical books. So it was during that time the nation of Israel is ruled by judges, eventually kings. They start out as a unified monarchy, and eventually they split into two, the northern and southern kingdom. The northern kingdom's called Israel. The southern kingdom's called Judah. Uh, so that's where we get those books, Kings and Chronicles. Uh, and eventually the nation, both the north and the south, persist in sin so long that God allows neighboring nations to carry them out into exile. But then keep looking at the table of contents. There is another set of five books, Job, that's not Job, it's Job through the Song of Solomon. These are known as the writings or wisdom literature. These aren't necessarily tied to historical circumstances. Often they are. Um, Mainly they show how people relate to the Lord. And then another section after that, from Isaiah to Malachi. You see that? This is the section known as the prophets. Now, we might think of the prophets as those simply who tell the future. Well, that's kind of in part, but it's more than that. They begin not just by telling the future, they begin by forth-telling what God thinks about the present. What he thinks about the present in light of his promises and faithfulness in the past. We're going to see Isaiah doing that. Uh, now, they, there were prophets before Isaiah, before these books were written down. 
Uh, there are other people, figures in the Bible known and referred to as prophets. Abraham was referred to as a prophet. So was Moses and Elijah. But these are the ones, Isaiah through Malachi, God led to write books. Now, Isaiah through Daniel are known as the major prophets. Not because they're more important, just because they're longer. Hosea through Malachi are known as the minor prophets. Now, all of these prophets wrote late in the story of the history of Israel, mainly during the time described by 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. So they wrote during a specific time period. You're going to see more of that in Isaiah. Now, the prophets as a whole, they're a bit like vegetables. We know they're good for us, but we do not necessarily run to consume them. If you give it a chance, though, just like if you give vegetables a chance, it took me a while, but I gave them a chance, you will see the richness and the nutrition that God gives through the prophets. Now, the prophets speak in a kind of poetic language that we don't use today, especially use in the West. Uh, They can seem to jump back and forth, not telling who is talking at a certain point. Um, So it takes a little bit extra work to follow. And they can feel a bit like classic novels. You know, it's like A War and Peace or uh, Scarlet Letter, I remember reading in high school. You know, novels that are supposed to be phenomenal and fantastic, but then when you read them, you're kind of like, I I don't get it. Well, we're going to see the major themes of the prophets. We don't want to ditch the vegetables or the classics. So we're going to spend some time covering Isaiah. See what God has for us there. Now, turn with me to the actual book of Isaiah. If you're looking at a Bible that looks like this, you will find it on page 566. 566. And I like to say this every now and then. uh, If you are new to the Bible, we're going to be jumping around a lot today. It's going to be very helpful to have a Bible in front of you. Uh, You will be lost, just like in life. If you do not have a Bible, you will be lost. Um, And so the chapter numbers, when I say chapter, that's the number in big, bold print. And then the verse number, the number that looks like a little footnote in front of sentences. Um, So when I say chapter 1, verse 2, you'll see 1 and eventually that little number 2 on the side. Now look with me, Isaiah, find chapter 1, verse 1. Very first sentence says, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, Kings of Judah. Now, from the very first sentence, we get some help in reading this book. Don't skip over this. First, we see what this book is. Isaiah says it is a vision. In fact, he says it is the vision, a single, unified one. Now, just as a sidebar, some claim that this book has multiple authors. I don't have time to refute that claim in entirety, but just taking it at face value, from the very start, Isaiah presents this as a single, unified vision. You can see an overarching story to the entire book. Now, people also will claim that there must be multiple authors because Isaiah wrote about events beyond his lifetime. Well, friends, that's kind of the point a lot of times. Well, second, just from this very first verse, some help in reading the book, we see that what this vision concerns, who this is about. It says, concerning Judah and Jerusalem. 
This is where the main activity is going to take place. This is Isaiah's main geographical scope, although he will go beyond these places. And third, just looking at this opening sentence, getting some help, we see that this vision came during a certain time. You see, the reign during four different kings of Judah, the southern kingdom. Isaiah writes during the tail end of King Uzziah's reign, which we read about earlier. He details Uzziah's death in 739 B.C., about 700 years before the time of Christ. And so Isaiah then writes through the time when the nation of Assyria attacks Jerusalem, roughly around 701 BC. So from the very first verse, we get some help reading the book. You see what it is, you see who's writing it, who he's writing it to, and who he's writing it about, and we see when he's writing it to, which will shape the content of his book also. So prophets are really hard to read, but don't make them harder than they have to be. Keep in mind these context factors. All right, so let's just look at the big picture of the book in general, getting some context of Isaiah before we dive into this opening chapters. Big picture of the book, even bigger than what we're doing today. There are a couple different ways you can divide Isaiah. Uh, It might be most helpful just to divide it in two. Chapters 1 to 39 are mainly words of judgment to Jerusalem and Judah. Chapters 40 through 66 are mainly words of comfort and hope, hope and comfort not just for Jerusalem and Judah, but this hope and comfort for Jerusalem and Judah that extends to the entire world. Friends, this is a book of transformation. It's a book of transformation of a people, transformation of a situation, Transformation of a relationship with God. And throughout this book, we will see how God accomplishes his purposes through his chosen servants. This is the Messiah, the anointed one, fulfilled ultimately in the Lord Jesus Christ. So for this morning, we'll see how the opening chapters of Isaiah introduce Isaiah's major themes and preview God's plan that he's going to carry throughout this book. Now, if we can sum up the opening chapters in one sentence, it's this. God will judge sinners and God will save sinners for his glory. God will judge sinners and save sinners for his glory. Very meat and potatoes kind of main point. But the two big parts of that statement are, going to, are what's going to serve as headings for our time. Uh, and these two big parts of the statement are reoccurring themes throughout the book of Isaiah. Another hint in reading the prophets, friends. Look for things that keep on coming up. No bigger themes than judgment and salvation. So today, we'll just fill in those gaps of those major headings. We'll see what, God, what leads God to judge. How does God save? And how do we respond to both of these truths? That's what's going to fill the gaps of our time. So first, overarching big point. God will judge sinners. God will judge sinners. Again, friend, I wonder, what's your response even to the title of that point? Even before we dive in, what is your response to that title? God will judge sinners. If you drive on I-71 South long enough, and you get a little bit past Columbus, once you're in the rural country, past Columbus, you will see on the side of a road 
a big billboard with big bold letters that say, hell is real. What's your response to that? Now, we could talk about that a lot, but maybe to you, that sounds harsh. Maybe to you, that sounds very Bible-y or very, at least, Old Testament-y. It's divorced from real life, divorced from the real life that includes a bunch of gray areas. Your response, just to the title, God will judge sinners. Now, whatever that response is, just for a few minutes, I want you to set that response aside. We'll we'll pick it back up. Set that response aside and let the Bible speak for itself. Let the Bible speak for itself. So again, we're going to remember who Isaiah is writing about. We're going to see how these people lived. We're going to see what God thought about how they lived. And we're going to see how God called them to respond. So just to get a little appetizer, an example of all these elements, follow along as I read chapter 1, verses 2 to 10. It says, Hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up, but they rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Now that's just an appetizer. But we could say more about how the people Isaiah was writing about lived. Fill in the backstory a little bit. Again, this is helpful when reading the prophets. We can keep in mind the context. We can read other books like 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles to get more clues. So Judah, the southern kingdom, was hardly a world superpower at this time. Neither was its sister kingdom to the north, Israel. In fact, the whole land as a whole, Israel and Judah, is roughly the size of New Jersey. But it was located in a strategic place. It was located in the land that linked Africa with Central Asia. This is the center of the known world at the time. So in this strategic place, Judah and Israel made the stunning claim that its God, Yahweh, was the creator and true king of the universe and of all the nations. Now, Uzziah, this king Isaiah is writing to, Uzziah and the kings before him were those who ruled on Yahweh's behalf, 
ruling with the conviction that the Lord was the true king. And they all looked forward to the day when the whole earth would see that. Now this conviction that the Lord is the true king. Now that was easy to believe during Uzziah's reign. He reigned for 52 years. During Uzziah's reign to the south, there was Egypt, who was once strong but past its prime now. To the northeast, there was Assyria. Assyria was ambitious, but too preoccupied to come against Judah. With no real threats, everything looked up for Uzziah and Judah at the time. You could say it was a bold economy. Under Uzziah, they expanded their military. They, lost ter- they recovered territory that they previously lost. They got closest to the golden age of their kingdom that they ever had been before. The golden age under Solomon and his father David. But as the saying goes, nothing gold can stay. Assyria to the northeast grew stronger. They grew more aggressive. And surrounding nations of Assyria had to decide whether to band together and fight against Assyria or just succumb and surrender to Assyria in the first place. And while threats were mounting abroad, threats were also mounting at home. This is what Isaiah mainly writes about, especially in the opening chapters. How people were living during this time. Now this newfound wealth of this golden age under Uzziah was not evenly distributed. It found its way into the hands of just a few who cared little for those who didn't have anything. At best, Isaiah will go on to say justice was bought and sold. At worst, it was tossed to the wayside altogether. As you can see in verse 10 of chapter 1, these people continued their religious practices to the Lord, but there was rot underneath. Isaiah will continue to denounce them along the lines of Jesus and along the lines of the Apostle Paul, who speak of those who have the appearance of godliness but deny its power. So you see, underneath all of their living, their old conviction that the Lord God was the true king, they no longer believed that. The Lord was no longer their king. We return to that concept we mentioned before. Look at how their lives are described in chapter 1, verse 2, and chapter 1, verse 5. There's one specific word, rebel. They have become rebels. And who did they rebel against? Look at verse 4. The Holy One of Israel. So friends, it was more that these uh, people did bad things. They did bad things because they were rebelling against their true king and made themselves king in his place. Now Isaiah shows more ways that they displayed their rebellion. So we just did an appetizer in chapter 1. Uh, We'll do an appetizer sampler and continue a tour. So come along with me to a tour. Follow along. Go to chapter 2, verse 6. Different ways their rebellion showed showed itself. Chapter 2, verse 6, we see that they replaced God with items from the nations around them so that the land was full of idols. Isaiah says there, For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers, like the Philistines. 
and they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. More ways their rebellion shows up. God calls Judah, his people, a vineyard in chapter 5. So go ahead and flip there. Calls him a vineyard in chapter 5. And he notes all of the bad fruit that this vineyard has produced. So chapter 5, verse 7 says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looks for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. In chapter 5, he goes on to detail the bad fruit, which includes verse 8, greedy land grabbing. Verses 11 to 12, drunkenness, excess. Verse 20, they've become the determiner of what is good and what is true. They call evil good and good evil. Verses 22 to 23, they pervert justice. Rebellion, taking many forms. One commentator says that the golden age had many impressive achievements, but it also had a darker side. A new wealthy elite emerged who grew more and more corrupt and more oppressive as they became more intoxicated in more ways than one. Intoxicated with materialism, intoxicated with the pursuit of pleasure. Remember what we read about Uzziah from 2 Chronicles 26. When he grew strong, he grew proud. So this is who they were. This is what they were doing. The state of affairs. And hopefully you get the point by now that the state of affairs is not good. So friends, this was them. But what about now? What about us? I'm going to ask you a really basic question. Someone's probably asked you this before. Maybe no one has ever asked you this before. Maybe it's been a while since you gave an honest answer to this question. Are you a sinner? Are you a sinner? You might not see yourself in the exact type of sins that these people did here. But think of the heart of their actions. At their core, These people lived like they lived because they decided that they were going to live how they wanted. They decided that they were going to live for themselves. Sure, lots of bad influences around them, just like us. But they had to buy into them, and they did. They chose to rule themselves instead of being ruled by God, the good king. Maybe you've heard sin described before as missing the mark, missing the mark on a target. So you take uh, your quiver full of arrows, uh, you hunch them on your back like Legolas from Lord of the Rings, and you aim at God's targets of a good life, and you shoot, and you just miss the center, but you tried your best. While that's helpful to an extent, The heart of sin being rebellion means that we take our arrow 
and we aim it in the complete opposite direction. That's the problem. When answering then, are you a sinner? Don't just think of your sins, as important as they are. Think of your heart. You remember that time Jesus met the rich young ruler? You can read about it in Mark chapter 10. We'll actually be in that passage next year as well. Uh, this rich young ruler, he is very interested in Jesus. Jesus is an interesting guy. Uh, uh, this rich young ruler is interested in eternal life. Who wouldn't be interested in, in eternal life if we're honest? And this rich young ruler wants to know how he can get in on this action. Now, Jesus knows this young man. Jesus knows that this man is impressed with himself. Jesus knows that if this man looks at the actions of his life and the evidence of his actions, that this man is only going to find good stuff. And there's a lot of good stuff to be found. But then, you know what Jesus does? He goes for this young man's heart. And all the good stuff that this guy did, at the bottom of his heart, he put himself before everything and everyone. He put himself before God. Is it any wonder then, friends, when the rich young ruler approaches Jesus and calls him good, that Jesus says, why do you call me good? There is no one good besides God. So friends, when asked, are you a sinner? Don't just think of commandments two through 10. Think of commandment number one. What's the first commandment? How has God called us to live fundamentally? It says, you shall have no other gods before me. Stated in another place, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart. Friend, is that how you live to the very core of your being? Is that the target you always aim at? Friend, is that how you live? Is that how you have always lived? Loving God the most, valuing him as most important. Does your love for God and putting him first explain your every attitude, your every action, your every pursuit, your every goal, your every thought, your every purpose? Now, each one of us are indicted, aren't we? It's more than just the stuff we do. You can be a really nice person and rebel against God. Some of the nicest people I know, listen, some of the nicest people I know refuse to speak about God. You can even, I can try to bring it up in the most gentlest way I can. And they will not only just refuse to, meek, uh, to speak about God, some of the nicest people I know will actually get mean when you talk about God, even in a gentle way. The heart, the heart of rebellion. Others still, their, their refusal might just look like a disinterested shrug. You know, yeah, God's important but really not important enough for me to stop living how I want to live. Others still are worried only about appearing as they follow God, but they will do, they will do so. They will follow God in their own way. 
Friends, sin takes many forms. Rebellion takes many forms. But at the heart of it all is refusal and rebellion for God to be king. A refusal to give up living for ourselves, as Jesus puts it, loving the darkness instead of the light. And friends, rebellion is just another form of pride. So what do you think God thinks about this? What do you think God thinks about this? What do you think God should think about this? Well, we can see his response throughout this section. Chapter 1, verse 4, if you flip back there. It says that Judah, these people, have forsaken the Lord. That implies some emotion behind that, doesn't it? There is grief at this action. But throughout this section also, God's response, what does God think of these actions We see God is angry at this. Whether it's chapter 1, verse 25, or chapter 5, verse 25, or chapter 10, verse 4, God is angry at this action, at this heart. Now, just to clarify on that, God being angry, this is God's response. If anger at its core is being against something, then, friends, you have to ask, is there something God should be against? Is there something God should be against? Should God, the one who is all good, the one, friends, who is the best good, be against those who are against him? Is that what God should do? Well, just think of this, friends. If God is the best good, then not to live with him as our king is living for something that's taking his rightful place. Not to live with him as our king is wrong. And if God be good, he has to be against what is wrong. It is wrong for anything to be exalted above God because there is nothing more purer than God, nothing more lovely, nothing and no one more right, nothing and no one more important. So what is it right for God to do? How is it right for God to respond to those who live as if they are, he is not their king? Look at chapter 2, verses 9 to 11. So a man is humbled, and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Friend, do you believe that God alone should be exalted? God alone, that he alone deserves glory and honor and praise. Him alone. Do you believe that that is what is most important because there is nothing more important than the Lord? This is not how we are wired, is it? Not by any stretch. We are wired to think we should be exalted. We are wired to think pretty much anything besides God should be exalted. If you don't believe me, this afternoon right after church, go on Amazon.com and browse the best-selling titles under the self-help category. And notice how me-centered they are rather than God-centered. 
Friends, there are even forms of Christianity, or so-called Christianity, that would teach us that life and the Bible are all about us rather than being all about God. So God sees their pride, and he's going to bring them low. This is how he will respond. He will judge sin. He will judge this rebellion. He will do that in the immediate sense for them by bringing in foreign nations, the nations of Assyria and Babylon, to carry them away from their home. And he's going to do that in the ultimate sense, in eternity. So that's another clue, just a sidebar for reading prophecy. When speaking of what's coming ahead, there are often two levels of fulfillment, a short-term and a long-term fulfillment. So in light of their rebellion, God's right response to it, what does God call them to do? He says, turn from living for themselves and turn toward trusting in him and hoping in him alone. You're going to just see a couple examples of this. Look at chapter 1. Look at chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Very famous part. How God's calling them to respond. It says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is how they were living, how God responds, and what God calls them to instead. So another God's calling them to repent comes in chapter 7, to hope in him alone. Here we get a specific uh, situation here. Chapter 7, look at verse 4. God sent Isaiah to King Uzziah directly when Uzziah was faced with threats of surrounding kingdoms. Chapter 7, verse 4 says, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, do not let your heart be faint. Why? Because his trust and hope should be in the Lord, the King. Chapter 10, verse 3, how God's calling them to live. God asks a pointed question. He asks them, What will you do on the day of punishment and the ruin that comes from afar? To whom will you flee for help? God calls them to turn to and come to him, to trust in him, to hope in him. Y'all, what happened here? They did not. They continued to trust in themselves, continued to rebel. They put their trust in people. Not the Lord. People, whether those who are powerful like Assyria. People, whether those who have supposed wisdom like mediums. He talks about in chapter 8. To all this, God says, chapter 2, verse 22. He says, stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. For of what account is he? God sees how they are living. Not just doing bad things, but doing bad things because they live with themselves as king rather than him as king. And at our core, brothers and sisters, we are no different. At our core, we are no different. And God is rightly angry at their rebellion, is against it, and must judge it. 
He calls for them to turn from false kings and turn to hope and trust in the true king. But they refuse and they continue to trust in themselves. And God will not let that go on forever because his name alone should be exalted. No one else's. Friends, have times changed that much? Have times changed that much? We are not an ancient people. We do not deal with the same kinds of exact problems that they did. But this word, God will judge sinners, this rebellion is still here today. You know, and we have to think too, still today, people do not like hearing this. People don't like hearing this. Christian, we've asked some basic questions so far, but here's another one. Do you believe the title of this point? Do you believe the title of this point? Very simply, God will judge sinners. Christian, do you believe that? Perhaps this is a good reminder that we should not expect the world to like hearing this. Many of us probably did not like hearing it at first. This is hard stuff to say. But we we say it humbly. And we have to say it. It's true. So yes, we say it. People might receive this truth better when they know we love them. Uh, They might receive this truth better during some moments than others. Uh, We might say some discussions about this take time. But all of that aside, if, if we love the people around us, we will say this. We have to get here. We have to get to this truth as hard as it is. And this was just as hard for the prophets to say as it is for us. You read about it in, in chapter 6, including Isaiah himself. The Lord sent out Isaiah to preach a message that he knew people would not receive, that he knew would be hard to say. Think about the Christians that came before us, even those who we would regard as the boldest of Christians. The Apostle Paul himself had to ask people to pray that he would be bold because he knew how hard this is to say and how much we would rather have the uh, approval of people around us rather than loving them by telling them this truth. Yes, telling them in in, in a humble, loving way, but telling them nonetheless. One of the best lines in all of hymnody, in all the hymns, I quote it very often, comes from Charles Wesley's And Can It Be? He says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin in nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. The people we've talked about so far, who we've seen ourselves in, can be summed up very well in the beginning part of chapter 9, verse 2. There it says, It describes these people, the people who walked in darkness. The people who walked in darkness. 
Throughout this passage, we've seen that these people even chose to walk in darkness at times. But in the second part of chapter 9, verse 2, the people who walked in darkness see a great light. And throughout this passage, there is darkness, but there are also glimmers of light. Let's take a brief tour again. Look back at the beginning of chapter 2. There we see that God will not just judge sinners, but he will also save sinners. The word that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest, mount, highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide, decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Glimmers of hope throughout this opening section. Go to chapter four. Go to chapter four. There we read, very beginning part, verse two. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning, then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and a smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. God will judge sinners, but in judgment, God will remember mercy. We read in chapter two, and the future, about the future blessing God will bring his people, blessing that extends to all his creation, to all nations. Chapter four, we read that God's people become pure, holy, their hearts are changed. And we see these glimmers of hope, these glimmers of light, and we ask, how? How does this happen? How do we get to this point? How do these people change? Well, many of these glimmers of light that shine through this passage revolve around one figure. In chapter 7, he is the child called Emmanuel, God with us. In the short term, that's a sign of a promise that this nation would be judged. In the long term, this child is a sign that the nation would be saved. Chapter 9, this figure is the child who is the promised king who will rule on the throne of David the one who brings light and peace, who ends evil, who is called God and who will reign forever. In chapter 11, this figure, we see while Jerusalem is cut down, a remnant, a stump remains and from that stump emerges a branch 
And through that branch, God's spirit will be poured out on his people so that they know God and desire God, desire God as their king. Through this branch, peace and justice on the earth will be established. And because of this figure, people from all the nations of the earth can be reconciled to God, their maker, restored to God, at peace with God. And what is the final result? God's name will be exalted, just as it should be. Read along with me chapter 12. Chapter 12. The final results of the work of this central figure. Chapter 12 says, You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. For though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust. I will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among his people. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. There is a reason why the New Testament quotes Isaiah upwards of 60 times. There's a reason why Jesus said in places like John 5 and Luke 24 that the scriptures, including the prophets, speak of him. This central figure through whom God accomplishes his people's salvation, through whom God satisfies his righteous judgment, through whom God exalts his name. This central figure is none other than Jesus Christ. None other. While we tell people the hard truth about God's judgment, we also tell them the sweet and precious truth about Jesus, the only one who can do anything about God's judgment. Friends, see Jesus' beauty here. Who else brings darkness to light? Who else brings, brings us from refusal to trust to a declaration of trust? Who else brings peace and justice on earth? And not just that, but peace with God. Who else averts God's anger, as it says in chapter 12? Who else averts God's anger because of the work he's done, taking the anger of God upon himself for the sins of his people? Who else reconciles us to God the Father so that he is no longer angry at us but dwells with us in peace, both now and forever? Who else, the result of his saving work is that God's name alone is exalted. Friends, we are sinners against God and God judges sinners. But you know what? God also saves sinners. And he does so through his son, the crucified and risen king, Jesus Christ. So we've seen these great pictures of hope, of who God's people will be. We've seen that this hope is in a person. But now we ask, like we did when we saw the truth of God's judgment, what do we do now? How does God call us to respond? Perhaps Isaiah's own experience can help us with this. This is the last part we'll read. Perhaps the most famous part. Go to Isaiah chapter 6. 
In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. And I heard the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. Friends, we stand in front of God. This is how we respond. Stand in front of God. And when we do that, I mean really, really see ourselves in light of God and who God really is, not who we make him out to be. And we see ourselves in in, in light of him instead of in light of other people. We recognize our true selves. Isaiah's been talking about this whole time, the sins of the people around him. And here he says, essentially, I'm no better. We confess our rebellion, and it is then that the king cleanses. Notice the cleansing comes for Isaiah from the Lord's altar, a symbol of God's provision and mercy. Isaiah's cleansing comes not from his own efforts, but purely from the grace of God. And having having confessed to God, been cleansed by God, Isaiah is then commissioned by God to serve him, to trust in him, to represent him, to hope in him. What you think about God is the most important thing about you. If you think rightly about God, then like Isaiah, you will have a deep awareness of who you really are. Made by him, made in his image, yes, but rebelled against him, the deepest level of your hearts. But then, Like Isaiah, you will be lifted up to have a profound experience of God's grace, his cleansing, saving grace, that we deserve his judgment, but get his salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. And that when God sees us, he now sees Jesus in our place. And then, friends, we will be willing to work toward the glory, not of our own name, but of his name as God continues to work in us so that we come under more of his rule, so that we grow into who he says we already are in Christ. And it's then, friends, this whole time, it's here, we are brought back to the one we were made for, both now and for eternity, dwelling with the God of the universe face to face. And what's the result of all this? God's name alone will be exalted. Let's pray.
holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. God, all thy works praise your name. Your work of judgment, God, praises your name. As difficult and as hard as it is for us to understand that. We say here, what we read here is you are perfect in power and purity. That you are perfect in standing against what is wrong. And you know what is wrong better than we do. And God, we confess that we have done wrong at the deepest level of our purpose and heart. We have rebelled against you. So God, we pray that you would still be in the business of saving sinners who deserve your judgment. So that sinners cling to the only hope we have, nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Would we cling to that hope today? Perhaps people here cling to that hope for the first time. We pray all this so that your name alone will be exalted. And we pray in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.